Well, if you have your Bibles with you, turn with me to Paul's letter to the Ephesians, chapter 1. We're going to look at verses 3 through 6 the next couple weeks. I keep thinking I can do more than I can do in these texts, but they're so rich that we're going to spend the majority of the day on, chap- or on verse 4. Next time, we're going to look at verses 5 and 6, which focus more on our God predestining us to adoptions. And uh, then the week following, I want to take the topic of election and predestination as a topic and consider the difficulties in it, share some of my own personal struggles uh, through it, but the expositor in me just required that we take Ephesians as Ephesians gives it to us these next two weeks. So let's look at it. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before Him. In love, He predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of His will, to the praise of His glorious grace with which He's blessed us in the Beloved. As we come to this text and we begin to unpack all the spiritual blessings that we've been blessed with in Christ, every one of them in the heavenlies, our minds can't comprehend the extent of this blessing, but he begins by speaking of God's choosing of us. Like I said, this morning we're not going to deal with some of the questions you may have. Uh, The topic of election and predestining of some and not others, some unto eternal life, and others are left for the justice of God creates tension in our thinking. The question of where does our will come into play? If this is done before the foundation of the earth, we will tackle those. This morning, we're going to dive into what Paul says to us. We're going to take his word at face value. So by way of trying to gain some understanding of the context in which Paul's letter was sent, let's try to put ourselves in the the shoes of a fictional character that I invented named Claudia, who lives in Ephesus at the time of when Paul's letter would have arrived. Claudia is 22 years old. She lives in Ephesus, if you could call it living, for she is a common slave in the Roman Empire. She has no money, no family, and is ruled by a cruel master. Her status was that of mere property. Slaves were not even considered human in the Greco-Roman society. She was considered poor property at that, for she had sores. They'd been overtaking her body for at least two years now. Another slave told her that surely someone had paid the gods to put a curse on her. 
and she believes it. Her whole life feels like a curse. She's quite certain she knows who has done this. Her master's daughter, Demetria, seems to hate her. It seems so unfair. She has often thought, if only she had been born into her master's family, then she would be reaping all the benefits Demetria enjoyed. On top of everything else, guilt was gnawing at her soul. A few weeks earlier, in total desperation, she had stolen some money in order to have a local magician seek to appease the gods and hopefully reverse the curse. Since all her prayers to Artemis the Great had failed to be answered, she figured she knew why Artemis had not answered her prayers. Artemis was a pure virgin goddess, and Claudia was not, for she had been defiled by some of her master's friends. When all hope had all but dwindled, she found a letter discarded in her master's home. Out of curiosity, she began to read. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who's blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. The word blessing seemed impossible. Relief was all Claudia was seeking. This word seemed to be extinct from her vocabulary. What would it mean to be blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places? And she read on, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. Who is us? As she scanned the letter, she looked, and it's the saints in Ephesus that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he's blessed us in the beloved. And she was overtaken with wonder. What would it be to be adopted as sons? as full-on sons to the God that is above every God. Any God Claudia knew was some spirit that could be bought off and paid to put a curse on your enemies. What about a God who's like a father who would adopt Someone that had no status and give them the status of his firstborn son. You see, we as Americans, we read this. And sadly, we can often read it and say, well, of course God did this for me. God is love. He's supposed to love me. He's supposed to think great thoughts of me. And we miss the grace that's meant to blow our minds. The Apostle Paul writes this from prison in Rome. He's not about to apologize for the amazing grace of God that has been shown to him in his salvation. As he was on the road to kill Christians, to arrest 
Christians to go into synagogues and find out who were the believers, and yet God picked him out before the foundation of the world. That not, not only to be in a chosen to be saved, but to be a son and to be an apostle. And so this is the letter that is before us. Let's look at verse 4. The whole charge of the message is to wonder. <laughs> you can't come to a text like this and just dissect it in a mathematical way. It's this sort of text that causes Paul to pray for understanding twice in this letter for the supernatural power for us to grasp the love of God for us. And so as he unpacks the blessings described in verse 3, he begins with this, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be blameless before him. Now next, the next sermon, we're going to dive more into this, but I'm going to touch on it briefly. Who is acting? The Father is acting. The Father is choosing. Scott was talking with me this week about the doctrine of God and how we can never have in our possession too much understanding of the doctrine of God. It is practical to every area of our life. What does the Bible reveal to us about who our God is? And in the great confessions of faith, under the title of God's decree, which speaks of God's choice, we find something like this. This is the London Baptist Confession, the second London, London Baptist Confession of 1689. Under the decree of God, what does it mean that God chose? Here's what we read. From all eternity, God decreed everything that occurs without reference to anything outside himself. So his decree is not based off anything or anyone outside himself. He did this by the perfectly wise and holy counsel of his own will, freely and unchangeably. Yet God did this in such a way that he is neither the author of sin nor has fellowship with any in their sin. This decree does not violate the will of the creature or take away the free working or contingency of second causes. On the contrary, these are established by God's decree. In this decree, God's wisdom is displayed in directing all things, and his power and faithfulness are demonstrated in accomplishing his decree. And then under section 5, under God's decree in the London Baptist Confession, it says this, those people who are predestined to life were chosen by God before the foundation of the world according to his eternal and unchangeable purpose and the secret counsel and good pleasure of his will. He chose them in Christ for eternal glory purely as a result of his free grace and love without anything else about them serving as a condition or cause moving or 
any condition or cause moving him to do so. So that might sound technical and careful words because they are. As theologians have studied everything God has revealed about himself in his word, one of the doctrines that becomes crystal clear is that the decree of God is according to his own choice, according to his own good pleasure. His decree, we'll get into more of this later, is not based on foresight into the future, responding to the way creatures act, but his decree is free in and of himself. And so this morning, we'll leave it at that. We'll pick more up. We'll press on that in a few weeks and ask questions to that. But suffice it to just take verse 4 as we are given it. Even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. One more verse I guess I'll give you according to his choice. James 1.17 says this, Every good gift, every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. So here you see an unchangeable God. And then in verse 18 it says, Of his own will he brought us forth by the word of truth, that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. Of his own will, Christian, when you were reading the gospel, when you were listening to the gospel preached, when a friend was sharing the gospel to you, brought about the new birth. It was according to his will that he gave you new life to see. And so he chose us. In verse 5, he makes it clear. He says, according to the purpose of his will. If someone were to ask, well, what was his choice according to? The purpose of his will. That's what it means to be God. What is the action he chose? It's, it's the word eklegomai. It's the ordinary term for choosing or selecting something or someone. He selected us. He chose us. He's writing this to the saints who are in Ephesus. F.F. Bruce says, so far as the personal experience of believers is concerned, their entry into relationship described by the words of Christ took place when they were born from above and was symbolized in baptism. But from God's viewpoint, it has no such temporal limitations. They have been objects of his eternal choice. And that eternal choice is so completely bound up in the person of Christ that in light of the divine purpose, they are described as being in Christ before the world's foundation. Here we are confronted by the mystery of God's grace. Bruce says this is a mystery. The Bible tells us the what's of what happen often. Clearly tells us what happened, what God does. But when we ask, why did he do it that way? Sometimes we're left with mystery. We're told that it's according to the purpose of his own will. God's choice Clinton Arnold uh, says this about this text. When Paul says that God chose us in him, he was referring to Christ's participation in God's act of choosing. Just as Christ was involved with the Father in the creation of the world by 
him all things were created, Colossians 1.16, so also Christ participated with the Father in choosing people for himself. So before the foundation of the world, the Father is choosing in the Son. The Son is a part of this choosing. John Flavel, a mid-16th-century, mid-1600s English Puritan, sought to imagine what this eternal council might have been like. Now we're treading on dangerous grounds, right? Here's what the Puritan imagined. The Father speaking, my son, here is a company of poor, miserable souls that have utterly undone themselves. And now they lie open to my justice. Justice demands satisfaction for them or will satisfy itself in the eternal ruin of them. What shall be done for these souls? And thus Christ speaks. O my Father, such is my love to you and pity for them, that rather than they shall perish eternally, I will be responsible for them as their surety. Bring in all thy bills that I may see what they owe thee. Lord, bring them all in that there may be no after reckonings with them. At my hand shalt thou require it. I will rather choose to suffer thy wrath than they should suffer it. Upon me, my father, upon me be all their debt. The father speaks. But my son, if thou undertake for them, thou must reckon to pay the last might. Expect no abatements. If I spare them, I will not spare thee. The son, content, father, let it be so. Charge it all upon me. I am able to discharge it and through it prove a kind of undoing to me. And though it proved to be a kind of undoing to me, though it impoverish all my riches and empty all my treasures, yet I am content to undertake it. And then Flavel says, for so indeed it did, 2 Corinthians 8, 9, though he was rich, yet for our sakes became poor. And so Flavel imagines in the council, this eternal council before the foundation of the world, this discussion between the Father and the Son in regards to you and me and the debt that we owe for our sins. And yet, I think Flavel touched on one aspect of the diamond of God's grace towards us. As I read the Gospel of John, I also see in his eternal counsel that the Father is deciding to give a gift to his Son, a love gift to his Son, a new humanity to his Son, brothers and sisters to his Son, that yes, will require payment for their sins. Let me show you this. Look at John chapter 6, in verse 35. John chapter 6, verse 35. Jesus is in a discussion with the Pharisees, and the Pharisees are getting frustrated with him. 
They will not believe in him. They keep asking him who he is. He has told them already. He showed them his miracles. And in verse 35, he says, Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me and yet do not believe. All that the Father gives me, emphasis on the word gives, all that the Father gives me will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I'll never cast out. If the Father gives a gift to his Son, and it's the elect saints known from eternity past, Jesus says, all that he gives me, I won't lose it. This is given from the Father to the Son. You see, we tend to look at this doctrine and like we do so many things, we make ourselves the center of the universe. We make election all about us and we forget that he chose us in him and that we are a gift given from the Father to the Son, that we would be conformed into his image, that we would be a new humanity that would bring glory to Christ. And so then he says in verse 36, or in verse 37, he says, all that the Father gives me will come to me. It's a guarantee. How does he know that? Because God's decree is sure. It wasn't based off anything else. If he said it, it will happen. All that the Father gives me will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I'll never cast out. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life. And I'll raise him up on the last day. And we say, see, it's whoever believes. That's exactly right. Whoever believes will be saved. But the question is, who will believe? Who is the author and the perfecter of faith? He who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Christ Jesus. The means by which God brings us to salvation is the preaching of the gospel and the opening of our eyes in our own choosing of him when new life is given. That's true. And look at what he says. In verse 41, so the Jews grumbled about him because he said, I am the bread come down from heaven. They said, is this not Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How does he now say, I've come down from heaven? Jesus answered them, do not grumble among yourselves. No one can come to me unless the father who sent me draws him. And I'll raise him up on the last day. It is written in the prophets, they will be taught by God. Everyone who has learned, heard and learned from God comes to me. Who comes to him? Everyone who has learned and been taught by God. And these Pharisees who say they're children of God are not coming to him. And Jesus is about to tell them that their father is the devil, even though they are born in Abraham. And then in verse 46, he says, Not that anyone has seen the Father, except he who is from God, he 
has seen the Father. And this is a theme that runs all throughout the Gospel of John. Look at John 10, verse 25. Again, what we're looking at is we're asking the question, what was this exchange like? What was going on in the eternal council between the Father and the Son? And I'm saying in the Gospel of John, we see the Father giving the Son the believers, the, the elect. And the Son's saying, all that He gives me, I won't lose any of them. So look at verse 25. Jesus answered them, I told you and you do not believe. Okay, <laughs> they haven't gained much ground in four chapters. They're still questioning, they're still not believing. The works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me, he tells them. But you do not believe because you are not among my sheep. Does that create tension for you? You do not believe because you're not among my sheep. We're going to let the tension hang, all right? He says, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My father who has given them to me is greater than all. And none is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. What would it be like to be in Christ's hand, who is in the Father's hand, to be that secure? What would it be like that your salvation, the beginning of it, began before the foundation of the world. Uh, do we have a, one more slide on here, Scott? Let me just throw this up as a reference point. When we think about how salvation works, uh, there's even some mystery in this. Uh, the Bible describes that our salvation began before the foundation of the earth in election. Then we were chosen in Christ. Christ comes into this world, takes on human flesh, dies on behalf of sinners. And then there's the outward call. God calls the elect to himself through the gospel at a point when he chooses. Uh, when, the, when the gospel call comes upon us, in theology, it's called the effectual call, the call that brings about the new birth or regeneration. Then our eyes are opened. Now we're spiritually alive, able to see Christ. We're no longer children of wrath, but we've been given a new spiritual nature. And then this is where our experience in salvation begins. We begin to understand the gospel and we choose Christ. And we don't choose him as a robot. We choose him out of the new nature we've been given in Christ. Our will now, we're no longer enslaved to sin. We can understand spiritual things and we can choose them. And of our own will, we choose them. We call that conversion. The moment we believe, we're justified. God declares us righteous before his throne in heaven. We're adopted. God takes man as his own child. That's what we're going to look at next time. So adoption all the way up through outward call all happens simultaneously. It just all happens at the same time. Sanctification now is God purifying us in the new birth until we die. We, we begin to be conformed into the image of Christ. And then we have perseverance. God preserves us and we endure by the power of the Spirit. 
And then glorification is when we'll be with him in heaven perfected, no more sin. All right? So just to have that in your mind, if we look at all that the Bible says about salvation, God, the Father, Christ, and the Holy Spirit are at work in all these areas. And a lot of these things happen at once. All right? Look at John 17 now. I meant to put that up earlier. But look at John 17. I told you this runs all the way through John. Jesus gets to the point of his high priestly prayer, the last prayer uh, uh, collectively with his disciples. And here's what we read. How is Jesus thinking about salvation? He says, I've manifest your name to the people who you gave me out of the world. That's how Jesus is thinking about it. Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Now they know everything that you have given me is from you. For I have given them the words that you gave me, and they received them, and have come to know the truth that I came from you, and they have believed that you sent me. I am praying for them. I am not praying for the world. But for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. All mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. And then look at verse 24 at the end of this prayer, just for the sake of time. Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am, to see, to see my glory that you have given me, be, uh, yeah, to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. I think Christ sees the Father loving him in giving the elect to Christ. All right, we're pretty deep in to the counsel of God here. We're pretty much about at the limits, aren't we? It says, even as he chose us. This is called particular redemption. The London Baptist Convention, uh, the London Baptist Confession says in point three under God's decree, by God's decree, and for the demonstration of his glory, some human beings and angels are predestined or foreordained to eternal life through Jesus Christ, to the praise of his glorious grace. Others are left to live in their sin, leading to their condemnation to the praise of his glorious justice. All right? We'll just dive into this tension a little bit. Just to show that God's choice is particular, Luke 10, 20, when the disciples got back, the 72 came back from being sent out to minister, and they're rejoicing that the demons even obeyed them. He says, nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. You see, they're excited because they're being useful in ministry. And God is showing himself powerful through their lives in ministry. And he says, don't rejoice in that. Here's, here's what you rejoice in. Rejoice that your names were written in heaven. And we know from Revelation 13, 8 that our names were written before the foundation of the world in the book of the life of the Lamb who was slain. The names were in there before the world began. It's a particular redemption. 
We don't get a lot of questions, a lot of answers as to why other than he chose according to his will. We are told in 1 Corinthians 1, uh, turn here with me to verse 26, in case some of you as Christians here are becoming proud in the fact that you're trusting in Christ and discovering that your trusting in Christ was actually a work of God's grace before you were ever born. Rather than become proud, let me take you to 1 Corinthians one twenty-six. Here's what he says. For consider your calling, brothers. So this calling is what we call the effectual call. There's the general call where the gospel is preached. We're commanded to preach the gospel to the ends of the earth, to every creature. That's the general call. But when God gives the effectual call, he accomplishes the effect that he determined at that time before the foundations of the world. That's when it's going to come about. That's the calling he's talking about here. He says, for consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many of noble birth. I wonder if Claudia would be encouraged by this. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what was weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what was low and despised in the world, even the things that are not, to bring to nothing the things that are. Why did he do this? Look at verse 29. So that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus. These are believers. And he says, because of him, you're believing. Because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness, sanctification, and redemption. There, there, there's a little bit of that ordus, ordo salutus, the order of salvation that we just looked at. So that, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. We are to be humbled. Let me just give you one example. I'll never forget when I lived in Columbia, the first part of the world, the, we lived there seven years, I believe, and the first few years there, I rebelled against the sovereignty of God and salvation. I, I turned election into non-election. I basically said that God gave up his eternal decree in order to put love on the top of the throne. He gave up his will in order to create free will creatures uh, so that love could be love. And that's basically what I did with my doctrine. But I had a neighbor that was a non-believer who we prayed for and who I was sure was going to come to know Christ. And I would try to uh, witness to him and talk to him and he would always give me a pretty big stiff arm when I would come over and one day I thought I had the perfect book for him to read I brought it over I said I see you reading sometimes I bought you a book and I gave it to him and he looked at the book and he threw it back at me and he says listen to me he says that dog sitting there is more important to me than any human being on the face of this earth my brother died a terrible de death in his 20s. He didn't want any thoughts of God. And in my Arminian theology state, I became angry and said in my heart, fine, go to hell then. Go to hell. And I went back over to my house. And then it wasn't long later 
that God started to speak to me through expository preaching. Preachers that just taught verse by verse. And I started listening to Paul Washer. And I realized my view of the gospel was so small. And he was changing my life radically. I was gaining power over sin I hadn't had before. But then I found out this Paul Washer I was listening to, I listened to probably 100 sermons, I realized he's a Calvinist. He believes in Reformed theology. He believes that God chose before the foundation of the earth. And I thought, how can he be so good and get that so wrong? I tried to call his church. Evidently, he's too busy to just take phone calls. He was, they said he was studying. But... It was with a wrestling match in Romans 9, which we'll look at in three weeks, that I finally got pinned by God. And I didn't necessarily like it. But if the Bible was going to be the Bible and the Word of God was going to have authority over my life, I had a choice. Either I was going to try to twist it and climb on top of it, or I was going to crawl under it. But you want to know what happened when that happened? I looked across the street and I saw my neighbor who has now passed away, by the way. And the Spirit of God through that doctrine said, that's you apart from the grace of God. In fact, you probably would have been more stubborn. That's you. And my view of the unbelieving world changed in a moment because I wasn't a smart one that figured it out but the reason why I believed was in the eternal counsel of God before I was ever born and it's by his grace that the father called me and made me able and opened my eyes to him So this doctrine ought to humble us. Not many wise, not many noble. And then he says, before the foundation of the world, 2 Timothy 1, 8, 9, this this isn't some obscure text. Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord nor me, his prisoner, but share in the suffering for the gospel by the power of God who saved us and called us, there's the effectual calling, to a holy calling, not because of works. He didn't call you because he saw you were going to do something, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began. It's clear. Titus 1.1, Paul, a servant of God, an apostle of Jesus Christ for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of truth, which accords with godliness in hope of eternal life in which God who never lies promised from before the ages began and at the proper time manifest in his word, manifest uh, in his word through the preaching of with which I've been entrusted by the command of God, our Savior. So that gives us the order. Before the foundation, he chose it. But in the right time, through the preaching of the word, God brought it about in our lives. And what's the purpose of him choosing us in verse 4? That we should be holy and blameless before him. Claudia was trying to imagine being a part of a normal earthly family that had a little bit of money, more rights than she had, at least enough money to go pay the witches or the magicians to try to persuade the gods. That's what she wanted some hope in this world 
But this text says that God the Father, the creator of heaven and earth, chose us in his son, Jesus Christ, so that you and I can be in the midst of the center of the Trinity, holy, without sin, and blameless. And why did he need to choose us to be holy and blameless? Because as he saw us, we were not holy and we were blameworthy. But every blessing in the heavenly places, the first truth you have to see in your mind is you sitting in the presence of God the Father and the Son, and you're not being slaughtered by his glory. He's presenting us before his presence in such a way that not only are we with him, but we're sons. And next time we're going to see this. To be sons. So, ladies, in Christ, he chose you as sons. Which means the inheritance of the only begotten son is fully yours. That's how Greco-Roman adoption worked. That's what we're going to look at next time. You can hardly imagine. We ought to just scream in praise and glory for what God has done for us in Christ. Let me conclude with Jude's doxology. Jude 24, 25. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy, to the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, authority before all time, now and forever. Amen.